there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. He definitely rocks the health world. When he's here, he rocks it even harder because he's Dr. Rashi Batar. And we're back. We're going to get ready to do some advanced medicine together, Dr. Batar. And I'm just going to give you a hint of where I want to go first because we got a number okay. of articles that we put together here. Uh, the question okay. is, can low doses of chemicals affect your health? A new report weighs the evidence. Now, You've heard me say this. I may have even said it in some lectures when we were doing advanced medicine uh, uh, seminars together. And I talked about the fact that, you know, when, when people were telling me that eating organic doesn't matter, for instance, and I would say, but, but that doesn't make sense to me because you have toxic synthetic poisons that are added to the food before, during, or after it's growing, and those are there at parts per million, Parts per million. And they go, exactly my point, parts per million. It's hardly there at all. And I'm like, okay, doctor, tell me at what level your endocrine compounds are working in your body, your enzymes are working in your body. Talk to me about those levels. And, of course, they had to admit that, you know, they could be found at parts per billion, parts per 150 billion and beyond. And now I said, weigh that against parts per million and not one thing but thousands and thousands and thousands of things at parts per million and tell me again how it doesn't matter that we need to eat organic or not? Well, I totally agree with you, but let's back up for a second and let's define organic. I'm not necessarily a fan of organic per se because we have found out, and we've covered this on the show before, that there are certain definitions of organic and people can actually use all sorts of strange methods of fertilizing and still call it organic. Some of those things we would never consider to be organic, but they have a definition for organic. So let's redefine that as opposed to organic, let's say clean. Let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about eating clean. Yes. Because you know the standard for organic has been really, really... Oh, yeah. There are farmers that don't want to be certified organic because they say they have to reduce their standards to get certified. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's one thing. The second thing is you're absolutely right about the parts per million or even parts per billion because some of these things have a tremendous impact, regardless of how much, they have an impact on the metabolic cascades. These things act as enzymatic cofactors that are necessary for the processes to actually go further as they're supposed to. Let's take like some of the trace minerals, like vanadium, for example, or mm. molybdenum, or some of these things. Um, and you look at things like coenzyme Q10, we're not necessarily consuming large amounts of coenzyme Q10, but the coenzyme Q10 molecule is such a minuscule amount in the body, and yet it is the most vital component of the mitochondria, the respiratory center, the lungs of our cells. So there's many different small components that when you look at it in the total volume in the body, they're minuscule. They may be Mm -hmm. parts per million or even maybe parts per billion, but they still have a very, very crucial role, and without them, life would not be sustainable. Now, the last thing that I'd like to say is about the diet which you brought up, Robert. This is really an important thing. There's an old adage, what you, you are what you eat. So, you know, we, we, raised, we were raised this way by t- talking about how we should eat certain things and, you know, by our grandparents and by our parents. And there's been more and more departure from that line of thought. 
But I will tell you that my belief of the importance of nutrition, the quality of nutrition, has actually evolved in the last 15 years. You were far, far ahead of me on that curve because even today, this, at this point, I still believe that at a certain point, to think that nutrition is going to make a change, like when you have advanced stage cancer, yes, it's important to change it, but it's not going to reverse the cancer. Now, it's going to have a huge component, and it's going to contribute to how fast you're going to recover and your ultimate success versus failure, but it's not going to change the, the progression of that cancer, per se. It may stop it, but it's not going to uh, reverse it. Now, I believe the mind is going to have a much more crucial role than what you put in your body. There are people that put in garbage in their bodies, as you know, and they never have this problem. You have other people that eat organic and clean for the last 30 years, and they still get cancer. So it's not just the, the quality of the nutrition. It's how you, how you bless the food, how you think about the food, mm-hmm. how, you, how you think about everything. But, yes, I do believe, and my evolution in the last 15 years has really come a long way, that the diet is crucial. What you put into your body, what the substrates yes. you put into your body are crucial. Well, and I just think about the, the, those that try to pray away the toxins. Now, I get that. Once in a while, you're out and about, and you, 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 know, you bless it. Absolutely, I agree 100%. I mean, I personally choose to fast more often than not than to just bless food that I don't believe is good for me, but that's you know, because of my experience. I've suffered in a certain way that I'm indelibly marked, and I don't look at it as a negative. It's just what I've learned to do for my own survival and to thrive like I'd like to rather than just survive like I was doing years ago when I was young. But I think there is, a, you know, the, the recognition that we have, our power of belief, our power of prayer is very real. It's very powerful. But I also believe that we are asked to do or take control over that which we have genuine control over. And that which we don't, we need to turn over to that higher authority. That is appropriate. But I think that it's easy to abuse it. And at that point, people go, well, I eat well most of the time. And I'm like, well, you start drilling down on their definition, it turns out, you know, one meal a week is actually clean, you know, but that's most of the time to them. You've, you've met patients like this. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And you're completely right that to make excuses or to justify lack of consistent, appropriate behavior is not, uh, it's, it's not acceptable, and you will end up paying the consequences sooner or later. You know, one of the things you talked about just now that you mentioned fasting, I think fasting is one of the most overlicked components from a health perspective. Did you say overlicked? Over, over, overlooked, but yeah, overlicked would probably. I mean, when you're fasting, fasting. You, you're like so hungry, you want to lick something. I get it, I get it, but no, well, overlooked, I, I got you. Well, I actually have been doing an 18 hour fast mm-hmm. pretty consistently for the last few weeks, where you basically don't eat anything for 18 hours, and then over a six hour period, you eat whatever you're going to eat. Uh, you, you know, you, you drink whatever you want to drink, but mm-hmm. um, I'm not drinking anything besides club soda or, or water or my little morning drink that I make with lemon and cayenne pepper and a bunch of other stuff. But the point is that this modified fast, it supposedly is, uh, I had read about it, but it supposedly is almost as good as regular fasting, but you can do it in a more sustained level. And so they suggest maybe doing it once every other day or once a week or whatever. So I just start doing it, and it's very comfortable for me. I don't have... Mm-hmm. I, I sometimes forget about eating anyway. So I actually just weighed myself, which I never do, Robert, never do. I just weighed myself this morning. I was 207 pounds. I haven't been 207 pounds since high school, I think. Wow. And You're I, finally going to fit into that. that dress you've been telling me about. Exactly. The tights and everything. <laughs> the high heels aren't going to break underneath my you know, weight anymore. But oh, modified fasting, well, modified fasting is something that, uh, from a, from a elimination detoxification standpoint, it's something that is easy to do, easy to mm-hmm. implement, and actually helps to 
give the body a rest, if you will, because the gastrointestinal lining turns over pretty quickly. Three in basically three to four days, it's completely turned over. So if you can take away the burden of digestion and absorption for the gastrointestinal lining for a day or two, and give it that rest so that it can just regenerate, I think that there is. That some, most people will will experience some type of a benefit, whatever it is, whether it's clarity, maybe you know their mm-hmm. joints will hurt less, or whatever the case is. So I think a modified diet, uh, fasting for an 18-hour period or 16-hour sure. period, whatever it is, it's, it's something that people should try. It's, it's, just think about it. If you sleep eight hours, that's an eight-hour fast anyway, and then just take another eight hours, you know, either before or after it, and, and see what happens. Yeah, it, it's not a problem. No, that used to be devastating for me to try to do that. Remember, I, I talked about that, that I was hypoglycemic. Turned out, you know, as we learn more about the mineral content, we talk about the chromium in a whole food form and the difference that it's making for people reversing type 2 diabetes, for instance. And, and those that are have an inability to fast, for instance, because they can't uh, mobilize the energy that's stored as in fat or as fat cells. And, you know, so some of this, it was an evolution for me. I didn't learn it all overnight, but as I begin to apply it, I can see and help people to get there quicker, right? I don't have a problem with getting people there quicker. And, and the shortcuts I talk about aren't really shortcuts. A shortcut would be kind of cheating. We're not cheating anything. We're understanding a, a deeper level of how can we apply what we know about the metabolism? How can we support it on that process? And this kind of fasting, some people have called it intermittent, but now I can, I can, you know, eat dinner at night, go to, you know, go to sleep, whatever, wake up. And sometimes I can go till two or three in the afternoon before I've eaten. And it wasn't a plan. It was sort of like, well, my body then tells me I'm hungry. So it's a different state of being and functioning at that point. I was never there for the first 24, 26 years of my life. Right. It's indication, I believe, of uh, more effective metabolism. Metabolism is effective or Mm -hmm. or healthier. I know that during my uh, post-college years, when I was in medical school and then when I joined the Army initially and I, was, I did like five years of bodybuilding all natural, I couldn't go an hour and a half without eating. Uh, my, my sugar levels would drop and it was all sorts of weird things that were going on, but I also know that wasn't a very healthy period in my life. And I think that the mineral aspect, you and I have talked about this on and off the air. We've talked about it at advanced medicine seminars. I've talked yes. about this from... Um, affectionately speaking, the pulpit or from, you know, the stage when I'm lecturing. Well, this, the this, of, you know, this is our healing ministry, so by all means, we're at the pulpit. Exactly. Well, the mineral aspect is so crucial to life, and I have almost committed sacrilege by making the statement, being the past chairman for the American Board of Clinical Metal Toxicology, that minerals are as important, if not more important, than taking out the, than the heavy metals. Because it's important to remember that the heavy metals, when they come in the body, they displace those essential minerals. So the three ways that heavy metals affect us negatively, one is oxidative stress, which we've talked about, ad nauseum. Second Mm -hmm. is displacement of essential minerals. And then the third one is metal uh, allergenicity, which is relatively rare. You know, maybe maybe five out of 100 people have that. So the point being, again, the mineral remineralization and the mineral aspect is so crucial to health. And Mm -hmm. that if you adequately give your body the right minerals, there is a possibility. It's not going to chelate, like people will say, you make in full wake up chelate metals. No, they won't chelate. But if there's sufficient minerals, there is a part of me that believes that minerals will displace the heavy metals, even though mm-hmm. um, so far it seems like it's, it's difficult to do. But you have to give the body adequate minerals. And if you don't have adequate minerals, the heavy metals that we're being exposed to constantly will replace and replete those minerals. Well, a keen clinical observation. It's a matter of learning how do we best replenish those minerals, in what form does the body utilize it the best. And then, of course, we see clinically, my gosh, the things we posited might happen, they are happening. Uh, we're going to get into some more of the toxicology here, and uh, this next is right before we're going to break here, Dr. Batar. Uh, Natural News article says even tiny 
traces of pesticides found to cause infertility. Now, this is specifically in insects, but I want you to think about this. Even if the pesticide burden doesn't outright kill you today, imagine if it destroys what you rely upon for your very life, for your digestion, for development of endocrine compounds, neurotransmitters, etc. We're talking about the microbiome. So folks that are saying again, oh, it doesn't matter that you eat clean. Well, maybe it's not going to kill your physical body, but it devastates that which keeps your physical body alive. Those critters in your gut. We're going to talk about that with Dr. Batar and a whole lot more next. Who'd you say that masked man was? It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Robert Scott Bell. Here I come to save the day. The Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Robert Scott Bell Show. Where does life happen? In the microbiome, I mean, at the microcosmic level, and as we are, we take arguments from from dunderheaded docs that have they're they're into viruses and, and bacteria and fungus, and they don't they don't talk to the toxicologists. They all say, "Oh, yeah, you don't need to eat cleanly," as Dr. Batar referenced in the last segment. Yet we're finding again the destruction of the microbiome, the alteration of insect uh, fertility. Of course, if the microbiome is made up of what bugs, basically bacteria. You're going to kill them with the toxic pesticides that you're not giving because you're not hopefully not swallowing a can of Raid, but the food is contaminated with Raid-like substances. What do you think is going to happen to you ultimately? And, of course, this is your moment of duh, or it should be, but unfortunately the learned people with medical degrees still haven't got the memo. Some have. We acknowledge them. Certainly Dr. Batar has been leading the way for a lot of years as well, and that's why we do advanced medicine together. So, Interesting stuff on the uh, acknowledgement of that, that these minute levels and how they are, in fact, devastating our good, healthy gut. Well, it's interesting that the first article that you mentioned was when you talked about, not the first article, but you were talking about when people would argue with you about the importance of organic food. Isn't this the same thing? I mean, how can you say that small amounts of positive aren't going to be effective, but small amounts of negative are going to cause a detriment? Well, yeah, isn't that a good point? Like you're making with replenishing the minerals that people say, well, no, that won't ma- that won't really matter because it's like hardly there. But no, it makes all the difference in the world. And I agree with you with where you were going. Absolutely, the more we learn about how to get these minerals in efficiently and in a form that the body can can really take, the more we're able to on our own without uh, aggressive invasive therapies, uh, uh, the body will know what to do to remove them. As I've said, and, and you acknowledge, of course, in your clinical medical practice, that there are extreme examples of children who have been so devastated with heavy metals via injection, mercury, etc., that you, you, have, you had to go in there to claw that stuff out, or however you want to describe it, with uh, chelation-type therapies intravenously. Uh, we'd like to not have to resort to that. If it's possible, of course we're going to be for that. But in the meantime, recognizing the devastating scenarios, we've got to find ways to help these kids. That's exactly right. There's an extraordinary, unnatural way that these children have been exposed to these heavy metals, and so it takes an unnatural therapy to negate it. And sometimes people say, is there a natural way of doing something? Well, you know, natural and unnatural, there's nothing. Do you remember, Robert, about two years ago, we had a nurse practitioner, I think from California or Colorado or somebody called in, and she had started off by 
giving me all these accolades, and I, you know, thanked her, but I cut her off for a second. I said, what is so natural? Because I think she made the comment that I was one of the um, best like natural best natural doctors. Or, yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, right. And I, and I kind of said, I said, well, what's so natural about taking a sharp-pointed metal object and sticking it in a person's vein and then giving them a synthetic amino acid like ethylene diamine tetracetic acid or dimocaptic propanosulfonate? And at the break, um, I remember you saying, way to beat up on somebody that's, you know, giving you a compliment. <laughs> so, but, you know, it, it brings, brings up a point that I think we need to further a little bit, and that is that when we're talking about a natural versus an unnatural treatment or non-natural treatment, you have to remember that today's exposure, like these metals that you're talking about, these trace amounts of chemicals and all these different things going into our bodies, these are not natural exposures, okay? They, we may think they're natural, but these are man-made uh, Phenomena. Most of these things are either man-made synthetic chemicals, or the amount that's being introduced into the body is synthetically elevated, meaning that man is introducing them at a much higher concentration. For example, ethyl mercury is not something that naturally occurs. Methyl mercury is, but not ethyl mercury. And ethyl mercury is more toxic, i.e., thimerosal. And then you inject it into the human body at a dose that's so much higher than what you and I exposed when we were children getting our vaccinations, because one, we didn't get them on the first day of the planet, plus we didn't get them all at the same time like children do today. So Mm -hmm. these are unnatural exposures. These are unnatural substances that we're being exposed to in an unnatural manner. And so it takes a non-natural therapy. So it's an extraordinary amount of toxicity given over an extraordinarily small period of time. And so it takes an extraordinary means to negate it. So it's important to keep that in mind. You can't take an herb or you can't take a mineral or you can't do something um, that normally in the universe would have worked if we had a normal natural exposure to something. But we don't have those natural exposures. And so that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with an extraordinary level of toxicity, and it takes an extraordinary means to negate it. Yeah, and this is well, this was not you negating her uh, statement about natural in the sense that we wouldn't want to be or go there. That's the point of our discussion. If we can go there, we do. But in an extraordinary thing, sometimes you have to take extraordinary measures. That's what allopathic medicine was originally designed for. Extraordinary to happen, you put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Although they didn't anticipate that modern medicine would be the cause of Humpty Dumpty cracking and breaking up from within via injection. So we're going to continue to undo that. We got a question from Germany coming up after the break. Ready, set, go. We're going to take that break and then come back and answer it. The Robert Scott Bell Show. In all my years of radio, I've never seen anything like this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Scott Bell Show. Links are up in the show notes at robertscottbell.com, including upcoming events, The Truth About Cancer Live where Dr. Batar is one of the featured keynotes, and he's going to be uh, bringing some great stuff. You want to be with us for that. Uh, also, if you want to learn more about Dr. Batar, D-R-B-U-T-T-A-R.com, drbutar.com. Don't listen to Ty Bollinger when he calls him Dr. Butters. That's not right. It's Batar. Just just a reminder. Because <laughs> he, he comes on and makes fun of you from time to time. We just got to keep the re- set the record straight. Uh, also, of course, the nine steps to keep the doctor away, international best-selling book. So I'm glad he makes us laugh, though. Let's see. Yeah, how do we, you know what, we do. We got a question of the day, and it's coming all the way from Germany. And uh, she may be sleeping right now, but she'll catch it in the archive. Here we go. Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. 
All right, this is coming from Dorit in Germany. She says, hey, there are so many interesting shows in the past couple of weeks. Thanks for that. I especially love the talk on histamine some time ago. I don't even remember talking about histamine. I mean, uh, we do so many shows, I guess you guys got to pay attention and remind me. Uh, could you please pick up this topic again when there is time? So many people suffer from this, me included. I'm trying to eat mostly food that is low in histamine, but I'm also trying to get to the root cause. I'm suffering from insomnia almost every night. All the best from good old Germany. Deutschland, as we like to say here. Uh, so, Dorit, we're going to try and answer a, kind of a vague reference to, to histamine. I will say this, and Dr. Batar, I was the poster boy for every allergy known to man. I had hyperhistaminic responses to almost everything, food, airborne allergens, you know, all of this stuff that it took me detoxing my liver, uh, healing my gut, and then I no longer had these hyperhistaminic reactions. So histamine in and of itself is not the problem. It's overreacting to things in the environment, and I guess we got to go to that level of corruption, and I don't know what she's referencing in terms of histaminic or low histamine foods, or is she talking about response to foods with histamine? Well, probably she's talking about the histaminic response, and basically this comes down to the allergenicity component. There's a, there's a response that the body has to foods that are taking in, and remember in the Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor, where I talk about the three foundations of health, and the, the three foundations of health, first one being systemic detoxification, second one being um, immune modulation, and then the third one being physiological optimization. Well, in the, if you look at the immune modulation component, it's a, there's another component to that. Um, the immune system will respond in a manner that it feels or thinks is the appropriate response, and it can be either hyperimmune response or hypoimmune response. Mm -hmm. So the hypoimmune response would be something that you would see, for example, in AIDS and cancer in transplant. In hyperimmune response, that's what you would see in an allergic reaction where you have like scleroderma, you have lupus, uh, those type of conditions, myasthenogravis, there's a hyperimmune response. So it's almost considered like an auto, well, it is an autoimmune disease. It's really a hyperimmune response. So when you're talking about the histaminic type thing, it would actually fall into the hyperimmune response category. And so certain foods are going to elicit a reaction, a response in the individual where the body sees the food as actually being a source of what we refer to in immunology as an antigen, something that elicits an immune reaction. And so then it mounts a response, and that's a histaminic response. And the, 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 the histaminic response can be manifested in various types of ways. Most commonly, you would think about the sneezing, the watery eyes, the itching, the urticarial eruptions, but there can be many other subtle forms so we do a lot of food allergy testing. So food allergy testing is essentially a delayed IgG-mediated reaction, and that's also a histaminic type. Well, that's not necessarily a histaminic response, but it's mm -hmm. a similar type of response. It's a response to the food as being seen by the body as being foreign, i.e. as an antigen, and then causing a reaction. And so there's a delayed response. There's, there's you know, acute responses. You have the, Ig, the IgE-mediated, IgE-mediated responses, which are... The anaphylactic immediate, you take a strawberry or, or shellfish and people start getting the swelling in their throat. That's another example of a, of a response, a histaminic type response. So 
I would suggest that if this is the problem that she feels that she's having, she goes on a modified elimination type diet or she goes and has a test done by a doctor that sees that, that can do food allergy testing and there's different types of food allergy testing. Well, what about Dr. Vitar, like EAV type testing like Jim Halver does? Like it's not it's not as invasive in terms of I had the, the hundred pokes on my back, you know, and everything swell up and said, You're allergic to everything. Again, this is way back in my kid days when I went to the allergy doctor and ended up getting ten years of allergy shots. Yeah, yeah, that definitely is not the right way of doing it. Um, we do a technique called um, the ARSVs, the autogenous androgen receptor-specific vaccine for uh, this type of response food allergy, for any kind of allergy. There's also um, low-dose antigen therapy, LDA therapy. There's, there's a couple of different types of things. Uh, the EAV that you're talking about, like Dr. Harvard does, that's another mm-hmm. option. The the Typical one that we do in our clinic when patients come in, it's very, it's a very simple blood draw, and you send them to labs, and then the lab will actually do the analysis. The problem is that there's a lot of non-reproducibility in some of these food allergy testing. So, meaning that you can draw a blood sample and then split it, label one as A and B, and the other one as B, and then you send it off to the lab, and they'll come back with, you know, sometimes mixed results. So, from from that standpoint, there is a somewhat of a reproducibility issue, but. That's what I was suggesting, but any any type of testing, energy testing, any type of energetic testing. Sure. I mean, you can just even categorize your foods and just say, okay, this week I'm I'm not going to eat any tomatoes. So you categorize your foods into meats, into proteins and carbs, and this and that, mm-hmm. and then you start looking and seeing, you know, this week I'm not going to eat a certain thing, and then see if you have the reaction. Keep a log, a food journal, and that'll help sure. you also identify. Sure, uh, very practical. Are. Now, again, I reacted to everything on the allergy test. Again, this is when I was a teenager or younger than that, like ten years of shots. Uh, we now, of course, know we can do this homeopathically. We can use the allergens in a homeopathic form as well. But ultimately, you know, to get beyond it where I'm no longer allergic, I had to heal, the, as I said, detox the liver, heal the gut, get the minerals back in. And now I can eat the things. I can breathe the pollen in the air and my, my sinuses are still clear when I couldn't go outside and mow the lawn when I was a kid. And there are a lot of, again, a lot of methods to get there. But the point is, if we heal the gut, if we heal the liver, we give the body the minerals, should we, is it reasonable to posit like I experienced that we should no longer have the allergy? Or is there some other habitual thing where the body just gets into a, a rut? Well, I think that constant exposure to the same food has a propensity to lead to developing an allergenicity to that particular food item. So like any other type of situation, the first time you get stung by a bee, you don't really have a problem with the bee sting. You get the swelling, the erythema, then you're done. But then the second or third time, you become sensitized to it. So then you have... Um, mounted immune response, the body remembers that this particular substance, just like a bacteria virus or some other type of antigen, some type of foreign substance, when it last came into my body, this is the reaction I had. So the body's memorized immune response now reacts, and that's what causes the hypersensitivity, the hyperimmune response. So mm-hmm. foods can have the same type of thing. It's constant exposure. So if a person eats a certain type of food all the time, they are much a more likely to develop Exactly. They will develop a food allergy to that. So one of the best things to prevent that is to have a rotational food plan. So don't eat anything that's the same for more, more often than every four days. That's a, that's a general, really safe rule. I mean, you could go every other day, but four days, sure. you're pretty, pretty safe. Well, and if you have say, leftovers, eat, I, I was just going to say, if you have leftovers, freeze them, uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, and that type of thing. So just try not to eat the same foods constantly. Right. And when we say eat the rainbow, we're not saying eat a Skittles packet either, right? It's the colors right, of right. the food from the natural world. And that also the different, yeah, there's so much more than, you know, the one packaged food that I grew up on, right? Pop-Tarts. You got to go beyond that, right? The, the four food groups when I grew up, pizza, hot dogs, Coca-Cola, potato chips, not working. Don't do it. <laughs> 
So let's expand wow. back to the, the topic of water now, because one of the key ways we can get everything to work, hydration. Dr. Badman Gellich talked about it. We've seen evidence in the scientific realm that it, uh, you know, every 1% drop in full from full hydration can result in a 10% drop in metabolic efficiency. But what about what's in the water? And, you know, we talk about synthetic toxins, poisons, added heavy metals, pesticides, herbs, all that. But what about something they add to the water on purpose to say it's good for you? Fluoride. There's an article here that is just so stunning in its dunderheadedness. It, I, I'm, just, I'm just amazed that somebody could actually print this. And, and, and it's, it's correctly titled, Scientifically Illiterate Mainstream Media Now Claims Non-Fluoridated, non-fluoridated Bottled Water is Causing Cavities. Yes, water is now called dangerous if it's clean. Again, our argument is for clean. Don't add toxic poisons that increase the uptake of heavy metals, and then when you remove it, claim that that's the cause of tooth decay. Yeah, this is, again, that misinformation and, and relabeling, you know, the evidence-based medicine has nothing to do with based on evidence, but they, <laughs> they reappropriate the usage and the, and the meaning of these words, and um, this is even more foolish than that. They're not even reappropriating the meaning of the words. They're just taking the total opposite thing. It's like saying if you put on your seatbelt and you drive carefully, that is dangerous because you can have a car wreck. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> it's I crazy. understand it. Well, there's a yeah. desperate move at this point to maintain some, some ability to poison the water supply and claim it's good for you. Now, I don't know how long we can remain this stupid, but the irony here is that the more they fluoridate the water supply, the lower the IQs seem to drop. Maybe these people that wrote the article, maybe their IQ needs to be checked. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, the thing is, uh, like I said, we do a lot to clean water before we drink it, before we get into our house, before it comes out of the tap. And I think it's appropriate. I mean, rather than relying on going out and buying bottled water, which we find out has even more uh, chemicals that are leaching from the plastic bottles as well, and we're trying to do better by this, but filtration technology is up in the, in the realm that even gravity-fed type filters are able to pull a lot of things out. So there's almost no excuse for folks to uh, say, hey, it's coming in through my tap. I can't do anything about it. You've got to do something about it, even if it's a simple gravity-fed filter. Yeah, I totally agree. Completely agree. It's very important to make sure that you clean your water. Um, and, of course, Dr. Batman Gelge, he was using contaminated water because he was in jail in, in Iran. He had no other options, and he still helped people. So water is good regardless. But if we have the option, we need to clean the water as best as we can to have it as clean and as optimized as we possibly And I think what's unique, too, about our body, 75% or so water, uh, we talk about uh, energy and water, communication, uh, Dr. Mo, was it Emojo? I can't even think right now. Uh, the guy that did the... Emoto. Uh, uh, Emoto. Uh, I'm thinking emojis. That's crazy. <laughs> but <laughs> the emojis of the water, right? It had the energy, the beautiful energy. So, you know, this is where we talked about prayer, being grateful, putting love into substance. Anything that has a lot of water in it can accept and receive that energy more so than things that are dry and refined and, and kind of dead. So... That is another aspect of this, being conscious about what you put into your body, blessing it and being grateful for it as well. Folks, we got one more segment to go on the Robert Scott Bell Show Advanced Medicine each and every week here with Dr. Rasha Bittar. Links are up in the show notes. RobertScottBell.com will take you to Dr. Bittar, B-U-T-T-A-R.com as well. You're listening to the Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The 
Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. Very often we have more articles that we want to discuss that we have time to discuss. So go back to the notes, robertscottbell.com. Read up on them. If you have questions uh, that you want Dr. Batar to answer, next week we'll get to them as well. Submit them right here at robertscottbell.com or through uh, Twitter at Media. Or you can go to the Facebook. There's a lot of places now you can go. Now even on on YouTube with the RS Bell Media channel there. Uh, Folks, this is a lot of fun when we get together and we get to talk. Deep level discussion. Some point out a lot of absurdities as well. And one of the absurdities we're going to wrap up with is a CNN article about blood pressure. Particularly high blood pressure. Hypertension as it's known. Now, it's bad enough in in the elderly or the middle-aged. What about kids? Apparently, according to this article... More children than ever will suddenly, suddenly be diagnosed with high blood pressure. I don't know why suddenly. Couldn't they see this coming, Dr. Batar? Where are their heads? Well, I think that the abundant use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories in the pediatric population affecting renal health, that's probably one place the increase in heavy metal exposure Cadmium toxicity is one of the leading causes of high blood pressure. In fact, if you look up in Cecil's textbook of uh, medicine, internal medicine, the number one cause of high blood pressure, I think it's like 80-some percent, if I remember correctly. This is one of the older editions, probably about 2005, 2006 edition. The leading cause of uh, high blood pressure is idiopathic hypertension. So idiopathic meaning they don't know what causes it. And it's actually cadmium toxicity. So you can remove cadmium. If you remove cadmium effectively, blood pressure will drop. Mm-hmm. But as we know that when you have one heavy metal, you usually have multiple heavy metals. It's not like one by itself. So there's lead, when you have lead, you're pretty much going to have mercury and cadmium. It just seems to be the the pattern. And so I'm not surprised that younger children are having high blood pressure. Um, mm-hmm. So you've got the renal issues from the non-steroidals and the heavy metals. Those are just the two that come right off, right off the top of my head and that come to mind. Well, and we've talked about displacement this hour. Once again, mineral displacement. Mm-hmm. One of the key minerals displaced by cadmium and mercury and lead, selenium. Again, we come back to that. And so these kids are being born probably deficient in minerals because their parents didn't understand whole food nutrition and mineral deficiencies. And, you know, maybe their, their pediatrician or, or let's say the, the, the OBGYN says go on a prenatal vitamin. But if you ever read a prenatal vitamin, most of them are made from coal tar. They're so synthetic. It's like, gee, you'd be better off not taking it. So there's a lot that we don't know. Or let's say the establishment in the medical realm don't know about nutrition to help counteract this. On top of it, the annual pediatrician visits or more than annual in terms of the first years of life where they get them on the months, they're injecting purposefully heavy metals like mercury and aluminum. And that's going to displace the minerals and put burden on the liver and kidneys even more. And as you've said, you know, and they even acknowledge in this, uh, in this article that they're worried, hey, you know, are these kids having kidney problems? But if that's the case, and it may be true, the question is what caused the kidney problems? They'll say, oh, it's a birth defect. Send money to the March of Dimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the problems, too, that when when we start doing certain types of treatments for these conditions, for example, if you take a child and you put them on, the, on high blood pressure medication, that's going to cause further problems and increase the, the, the side effects. And then, you know, you get into this cascade of giving one drug for the side effects of another drug, and especially in a child where the metabolism is not fully developed yet. I'm sorry, the organ system is not fully developed yet, and metabolism is still 
learning its path, if you will, and then you start creating all these other types of implications. And so it's never good to mess with the design of something that's still in construction phase, and that's what a child is, and it's still in construction phase. So, Yes, and, and, and if we look at one of the other factors they say in this article, obesity. Obesity. Now, how is it that you have kids, uh, and it, you know, younger kids, younger and younger, are saying they're obese. They're not just a little over, they're obese. And you say, well, if there's so much food, how could they be deficient in minerals? Well, if the minerals aren't in the food and the toxins are, we come back to where we started this hour, doing advanced medicine, talking about even low-level toxicity is creating heaps of problems that are just now being acknowledged. Primarily, they've been acknowledged by the toxicologists, but those that only look at uh, pathogenic causes of disease or mysterious birth defects or, as you say, idiopathic causes, which are unknown, uh, you know, the people that are the experts that are supposed to help us clearly are lost. Yeah. Yeah, they are. It's it's a very, very sad situation because then it creates a, a cascade of events. And mm-hmm. so many people, when you start looking at their medications, when a patient comes in, they're, they're on half the medications for primary issues and half of them for secondary issues that are related to the side effects. Caused by the medications, exactly. By the way, another mineral to look into is silica, which addresses... Uh, the vasculature, the connective tissue of the body, and that could address blood pressure issues, elasticity, and strength of the, of the blood system. All right, folks, we got to go. Remember, medicalrewind.com, easy place to get all the hundreds of hours of archives of advanced medicine with Dr. Batar. Your turn, Dr. Batar. Tell them what they need to know. The power to heal is unequivocally yours. Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show.